Amen and amen. It's nothing like the majesty of singing scripture. To be able to open the Bible to the 24th Psalm and read it as it's being sung is a powerful thing, isn't it? That's a song that you and I ought to learn. The Spirit of God might arrange it a little bit differently, but it will certainly be sung in the everlasting as we bow before the King of glory. Can you imagine the majesty, the splendor of the temple which is overlaid with gold, shimmering in the Middle Eastern sun and seeing Jesus come down the hillside of the Mount of Olives on his glorious entrance into that city on his holy week? Can you imagine the echoes of people singing about Hosanna and hallelujah and glory be unto him. I'm telling you, you don't have to imagine it. One day in the future, you will experience it as the great millennial kingdom comes into play. And you and I will experience the glory of our Savior for all eternity in the new heaven and the new earth. What a majesty we will declare to him. I'm grateful to our worship ministry leading us in such a way. I know there's different churches with different styles and such, but I can tell you there's one church in Gadsden, Alabama, which will sing with a choir and with all the host of those who are musicians, and we are thankful for that. All right, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy. As uh, some of our worship team is still making their way into the house, I should probably just remind you as we're working to 1 Timothy chapter 1, opening your Bibles there, or taking one of those Bibles out of the seat in front of you and looking along in the text with me. Not all the text that I'll read today will be on the screens or necessarily um, available to you in that way, so you'll want to have a Bible handy. As you're coming into the building on Sunday mornings, uh, you can see that some Sundays were a little bit more full than others, and it creates a little bit of an issue for us to have seating for everybody that's coming in. Uh, so that they can be seated as a family. I'll just ask us to get in the habit of seat, being seated to the middle of the aisles. All the aisleways are short enough that we can get in and out, no problem. Uh, it's helpful to us if you arrive early for you not to sit on the ends. It keeps your feet from being stepped on, and it helps our guests and members who are coming in uh, as the hour is beginning. So would you just help us to be conditioned to that? Uh, today, we're not going to have that big of an issue, but uh, we can find seats around today. But sometimes on some Sundays, and I think in the month of May, we'll see this, we're going to need some help with that. So just be conditioned, if you will, to move to the inside of the aisles as quickly as you can, and then we can bring more and more people in the house of the Lord. On Saul's second missionary journey, he came to Ephesus, which was a tremendous Roman providence. In fact, it was an important trade center for Rome. There were prominent roads coming in and out of that region so that they could have trade with the rest of Asia Minor. It was a town with the largest amphitheater of the world. 50,000 people could sit in the amphitheater there at Ephesus. And of course, one of the seven wonders of the world, the Temple to Artemis, was there as well. So it was a prominent city. But Paul, for him, the grandeur of Ephesus was not its structure and certainly was not its economy. It was the people, particularly repentant people. They had heard the message that John had proclaimed 
They had heard the message of repentance and many of them had received that by faith and were being baptized or had already been baptized by hearing that message. However, they did not know the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, had come. They had only heard the introduction to John. When Paul came into the city, he saw people who had been given to faith in God that he alone was the one that we ought to be living toward in repentance, but they did not know the gospel in its fullness, so Paul began to open up the narrative of the gospel. He began to tell them Paul, uh, John's rest of the story that Jesus of Nazareth had come, the Messiah had come as promised by the words of the Old Testament. And as they heard that glorious message, they began to be saved. Here's his simple message in summary form as Luke gives it to us in Acts 19. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. That's the indicator for Luke to help us to understand that Paul was opening up the rest of the gospel to them, and many of them were coming to faith in Christ Jesus, had given themselves to him. So upon hearing that message, they were receiving the gospel, and they were being filled by the Holy Spirit, and they were baptized. Now, Paul spent three years investing in Ephesus. It was two primary objectives for him. He would go into the place where there were unsaved people, namely the synagogues, and he would proclaim the Old Testament to them and about how Jesus had come and the fulfillment of all those words of the prophet and how all the law had been pointing towards him and all the things of Judaism were pointing to Christ. And some of them were being saved. That was the first objective. The second was that he would invest in those who had come to faith in hearing the fullness of the gospel and he would teach them the grand doctrines of truth. In fact, the way it summarizes is that he would teach the whole counsel of God. That means that he taught the fullness of God, God's plan of salvation and the truth of God in Christ Jesus without reservation and without preference. In other words, he wasn't picking and choosing what he thought was best to teach. He taught them everything. That's what the apostles were doing. They were teaching them the whole counsel of God making sure they understood the fullness of what it means to be saved and keep on being saved and gloriously saved in the day ahead. So when Paul was forced out of Ephesus by the people who were enemies of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he called the elders of the church at Ephesus together to meet at Miletus that he might address them, and he gave them a very specific challenge. It's found in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 27. If you're in 1 Timothy, just hang there for a moment. Paul gave them an imploring strong message. He said this, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now listen to this. He's speaking to the elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now, 
let's just think about this for a moment <clears throat> because we might want to collectively pull the whole church into this address but he's talking specifically to elders and he's saying to them you need to be careful pay attention to yourself and to the flock which the Holy Spirit has given to you made you to be overseers he's warning them that there is a risk for them as the leaders of the church to move towards false teaching and thereby there's a risk to the church as a whole so he says pay careful attention to yourself and to the flock God has made you an overseer <coughs> to care for the church of our God which he obtained by his own blood thank you babe one of the many reasons why I chose her a number of years ago to be my bride <laughs> faithfully takes care of me so he's reminding them be careful about what you are doing as leaders this is a big point because the church belongs to Christ and the message belongs to Christ I love you my affection is for you I have a sense that we belong together but I have tried to stay settled and rooted and foundational to this truth you don't belong to me you belong to Jesus Christ and the message is not mine the message is his and as a leader of the church it is my duty to be faithful to Christ to serve you well and to teach his word well I pray and if you'll join me in that prayer I'll be found faithful in that this is what Paul is calling for those elders to do you make sure you pay attention to yourself because this church and this word belongs to Christ now look what he gives warning to in verse 29 I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock and from among yourselves your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them therefore be alert now we are often focused on an attack that is going to come from the inside or from the outside and Paul is saying no 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 this is going to come from the inside it doesn't mean that there will not be external threats there will be but he tells the elders of the church at Ephesus your greater risk is you the greater risk is that you will become false teachers the greater risk is that you will be the wolves among the sheep I don't mind telling you that strikes fear in me all churches must be alert to the false doctrine taught by people who appear harmless as Christ's followers but are dangerous, teaching twisted things to draw people away from biblical truth and the true essence of the gospel. All teachers of the Bible must be alert to their own risk of becoming false teachers. Just four years after Paul left Ephesus, he is writing this first of his pastoral letters. False teachers, he began to forewarn them, would invade the church from within the church, so they ought to be very much on high alert. Those teachers would bring destructive and damning lessons, and Paul knew that, so he's putting them on alert. 
Now contemplate the reality of that with me for a moment. We're talking about an apostle of Jesus Christ, not just anybody, but an apostle of Christ Jesus, which meant that they had been taught by Christ, they had seen the resurrected Christ, and had been commissioned by Christ very specifically to the church. Now that's a very small number of people. Here's a church that had been taught by an apostle of Jesus Christ who was spirit-filled and a New Testament author. And just four years after investing in them for those three years he was there, it is all unraveling because there were men who wanted to have the acclaim of the rabbis of the day, wanted to appear like them. So with real conviction and real assertions, they begin to teach as if they're rabbis. And Paul says, they don't even know what they're saying. They don't know the message by which they are proclaiming and they are false in their teaching. Isn't that amazing? Just four years later and the thing is unraveling? Some people not alert and not surrendered to truth were being led away and the church was being deluded and impotent. But it was not too late. And that's why Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. He's impressing upon the need for Timothy to charge those people who are teaching falsely and bring correct doctrine into the church again so that the church might live out the fullness of the gospel so that others would know who Christ Jesus is. Now, as secularization steadily marches throughout the world, Christians and Christian churches must be doctrinally sound. We must stand and take hold of our position, standing on God's truth, not swaying from the words that have been declared by God since the beginning of time. It is time for us to be courageous and undeterred to know God's word and to live it righteously. The world is at war. It's engaging in a moral and sexual revolution. Whereas people throughout time have viewed sexuality and morality rooted in God's intention design and revealed in God's created order and declared by his word on the pages of the Bible, today's moral revolutionists deny God and the word of God. They reject the simple laws of creation that define what is male and what is female. And they confidently assert that human liberation and expression exceeds that of the word of God. One by one, some churches and their denominations have caved to the erroneous LGBTQ mantra they conclude the false notion of love that they have aspired to supersedes God's mandate to be holy and righteous. And the acceptance for all is trumping the requirement for all to surrender to God and his word. It is not just about marriage and family that it is under attack. Most every doctrine of the Bible is under attack. For the Bible is the truth as old as mankind's existence since its inception the church has had to fight and stand for the holy ground of doctrinal truth and clarity but listen carefully to me we don't fight for doctrinal truth to a fallen world that denies the triune God and his eternal word we fight for doctrinal truth and integrity in the church that's where our fight for doctrine is 
among people who call themselves Christians and teach with confident assertions even though their lives and speech do not match the will and the way of Jesus Christ. Our doctrinal integrity is essential because salvation is, and life is grounded in that truth. Take away truth and you take away the gospel. Dilute doctrines always will bring a dilution of faith. And when you diminish the means for us to have great faiths on sound doctrines, you diminish the opportunity for a pure heart and a clear good conscience and sound sincere faith doctrine is essential within the church it is always true that moral degradation accompanies doctrinal decline let that settle in moral degradation always is accompanying doctrinal decline you and I need to be rock solid in our doctrine we ought to demand that teachers of the bible in the church are rock solid in their faith and doctrine the integrity of god's word it's true for individual christians as well as goes our engagement in the bible with a pure heart and good conscience and sincere faith so goes our lives it's just essential that you and I are grounded in God's truth. So Paul charges Timothy and us to take a courageous stand for truth and to walk in it. So go back with me, if you will, into 1 Peter. I'll begin in verse 3 where we were last week, and I'll move into our text today as well. Look what it says. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussions desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I want to make two points, two main points. And the first is this. We can be confident that the law is good. The law given to us by God on the pages of the Old Testament, the law is good. Now, Paul is assuring Timothy that it is good, that corrupt people might be misusing and misrepresenting it, but the law is good. Even though we live in an age of grace, the law is right when it is rightfully applied. Now, here's what the law is providing, and this is the reason why it's good. 
The law is good because it provides restraint to society. Just generally, it provides for the whole world a restraint. Life is better when people have restraint and follow God's law, no doubt. Imagine our lives without the rule of law today. There is safety and there is justice and there is peace when we are resting and walking within the parameters of the law of God. And there is not safety and not justice and not peace where the law is forsaken. If you want a society that is blessed, then bring the society with this restraint of God's law. Secondly, the law is good because it brings blessings to the saints. Now, you're not going to achieve sainthood by being obedient to the law. Sainthood is a gift to us, given us by Christ Jesus, who takes away our sin and gives to us the credit of his righteousness and declares us no longer to be sinners, but saints of God. Now, we as saints of God, by faith in Jesus Christ, are blessed when we live within the boundaries of the law. God, God's law gives justified people, alive in Jesus Christ, the holy boundaries by which you and I may flourish. By God's grace, he empowers us by the Holy Spirit to live eagerly with his law. It's not in your handout, but Romans chapter 7 says this. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. So the law brings restraint to society. It is a blessing to saints. And look at number three. It's a condemnation for sinners. The law is good because it brings condemnation to sinners. You say, well, that doesn't sound very good. Hold on. Listen to the clarity of Paul's writing about God's law. Now, again, this one's only going to be in your handout. It's not on the screen. If it had not been for the law, Paul says, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So Paul's making a declaration, it is good because it identified the condemnation that is already upon me as a lawbreaker. I did not even know that I was a lawbreaker until the law told me that I was a lawbreaker. So in other words, it was the holy, righteous, and good command of God that revealed to Paul that he was a sinner. And without the goodness of the law, Paul would have not known his sin and God's judgment against him, and Paul would not have known that he needed a Savior. So in that the law is good, it's good because it brings condemnation to us and that condemnation helps us to discover that we are in need of God's mercy that is available to us in Jesus Christ. It brings us to that understanding. So Paul writes in today's passage that we were reading, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless. And disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. Now, those are three subsets that are pointing to the first half of the Ten Commandments. That Decalogue, he's going to break it into two parts, and he's going to point out how the law proves our lawlessness in the first half of it, and then he's going to give us some more direction on how the lawlessness is evident in the latter half of the Decalogue as we look at our lives in comparison to it without Christ. So let's just walk through that. 
People who are lawless, that is, they have no commitment to the standard of God's law. They are lawless. Because they are lawless, they are thereby disobedient. If you don't care that the speed limit is a certain number, then you are probably disobedient to that number. You don't care about it. So he's saying those who are lawless are obviously disobedient. And to the ungodly, those who could care less about the sacredness of God or about God himself, that leads them to be sinners because they're not given to the holiness of God or to God who is holy. They are thereby sinners. And to the unholy, those who are indifferent to God or any duty to God, they are profane. It's evident in our culture in the language. Have you noticed the rawness of the language today, the commonality of the profane language that is used in the culture of America today? You know why that is? Because people are unholy. They're not given to holiness. They're not given to the holy God. And because they are not given to holiness, they are profane. Listen, as Christians, watch your vernacular. Watch what you say and the manner in which you say it and the rawness by which it comes forth. Is your mouth evident that you are given to holiness? So here's what Paul's saying. The law is good it is addressing our need for a savior and it's obvious that it's not for people who are just it's for people who are lawless and he tells us all those who are are listed there in these first subsets are pointing back to their evidence of discounting God and then he goes forth with others talking about lawless people he says this law is for those who strike their fathers and mothers. By the way, that's, that's a direct opposition to the fifth commandment. It's for murderers, people who disobey the sixth commandment. The sexually immoral, including men who practice homosexuality, that's a direct conflict to the seventh command. Enslavers, those who are, who are thieves, a, a correction of the eighth command of God. To liars and perjurers, those who say no to the ninth command, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So what he's saying is the law is for the lawless, pointing out their sin, pointing out their need for the gospel. People who are dismissive about the law reject its goodness. The goodness of the law is it, it identifies sin. Now, I know what the world is trying to do today. They're trying to arrange the words and the definitions of sins differently. And they can be dismissive of the law of God. Listen, don't be dismissive of the law of God because God is not dismissive of it. Don't change definitions so that you have some sense of satisfaction in your sin. God is not changing his definitions. God is going to hold you accountable to as he knows truth, not as you perceive truth to be or want it to be. We'll all stand before God one day. But it's pointing out in such a way that sin is identified in mankind and the conclusion comes out of necessity. We need a merciful Savior. John Stott rightly labels the law is the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It's leading us to Christ. 
So don't be dismissive of God's law. With justice, he will hold every person accountable to it. Now look at the screen, Romans 3, 19 through 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. Man, there's a bunch of talking heads today that try to spin out what's right and what's wrong and shiftiness of moralities. Here's what the Bible says, every mouth is gonna be stopped. All of that expose, all of that arguing, dialoguing, all of that back and forth will be silenced. And the whole world will be held accountable to God. Look what it says in verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So we must proclaim God's law so that the world understands that we're all guilty of breaking God's holy commands without grasping the guilt that people have before God. People will not understand the glorious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, God extending mercy and grace to sinners through Jesus Christ our Lord. So drive to the law so that you might end in the destination of the gospel of Christ Jesus. Proclaim God's law that the world would understand their guilt before Christ. Paul came to that conclusion in his personal testimony. He concludes that testimony this way, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He was driven there to Christ Jesus because of the body of death full of sin, marked with sin, he came to conclusion that he needed the Savior. Now look at the second point. We should be alert to misguided teachers of the law. So the law is good, but there can be misguided teachers of the law. We're to proclaim God's truth, and when we proclaim God's truth, we ought to know that lies are lurking. Where truth is present, lies are close at hand. And Paul has broadcasted his doctrines of God to the fertile hearts of the people who were given in faith in Ephesus. And at the same time, he knew that false teachers were waiting in the wing for an opportunity to sow the seeds of untruth and division. Jesus knew the absolute same thing. On the Sermon on the Mount, it concludes this incredible teaching with great truths. At the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. By the way, what is the narrow gate? It's not what is the narrow gate, it's who is the narrow gate. Jesus says, I'm the door. You enter into heaven, you enter in the kingdom of God through the gate, Christ Jesus. So he says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Be, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So no, those are not two subjects that he's jumping to. Those are one and the same. He's saying the narrow way into eternal life with him and the Father in heaven is through him. He says, I'm the way. No one can come to the Father except by me. There's not many roads 
well let me rephrase that there are many roads but every other road other than the narrow road of Christ leads to destruction there are not many ways to heaven there are many ways to hell and Jesus says there is a narrow way unto life eternal with him the father in heaven and that is through Jesus Christ now there's a broad way a broad path that's easy to travel that leads to destruction beware of false prophets he's letting us know that there are going to be many false prophets who are going to lead you on a broad path to hell now that's the words of Christ at the conclusion of his message the truth states that the way into the kingdom of heaven is narrow and hard it's easy to deny it's easy it's not easy to deny ourselves to take up the cross of Christ and follow hard after him it's not easy to do that forsaking the world in its sinful ways that's not easy following after Christ who says be holy as I am holy that's not very easy according to Jesus the people who find salvation in him are very few however as we make the truth appeal of Christ false teachers will rush in and they will begin to proclamate their doctrine of falsehood offering a wide and easy albeit wrong pathway to supposed salvation here's what Paul would say they are ravenous wolves in the Ephesian church the way that was false were the myths the genealogies that uh, were taught in a way that brought speculation about how one might be saved such a path didn't lead anyone to repentance didn't lead anyone to denial of sin nor of self or of faith in Christ Jesus listen if you're watching online today or you're listening on a podcast today or you're listening on the radio and you're hearing somebody that's telling you what the gospel is you're hearing somebody say raise your hand if you don't want to go to hell and you instead want to go to heaven if you're hearing somebody proclaim to you some way that you hear is the gospel but it does not lead you to repentance it does not lead you to deny self it does not lead you to forsake your sin and move you to the holiness of Christ by faith in him you are listening to the wrong message Christ's message is very clear he didn't make it difficult the journey itself is difficult but the message is simple there is no substitute for the gospel there is no other way to salvation except by grace through faith in Christ alone and when people place their faith in Jesus and they deny the sin in their life and they eagerly surrender to the Lord Jesus and his word then they are saved misguided teachers will lead you to believe that there is a broad and easy way for you to make life better today that you can just be a better version of yourself today they claim that as long as you love you can have eternal life with God as long as you love you can remain in your sin <laughs> those misguided teachers will lead you on a broad path that leads to hell the truth is we are spiritually walking dead people that's the truth and the law identifies that in us as lawbreakers we are spiritually dead we don't need good works we don't need a better life listen my friends you and I need a new life we need a new heart we need a new record we need a new name and we need a new nature and only Jesus can provide that let's be surrendered to him 
good works or intentions they don't save anybody salvation only comes by the narrow way of Jesus Christ so Paul says be alert be alert to someone who speaks God's word and what ought we to do I think we ought to stop look and listen when somebody is proclaiming God's word stop look and listen whether it's this platform or another platform, whether it's songs that you hear on, a, on your streaming device or on the radio or on the satellite, stop, look, and listen. Whoever or however they are proclaiming to speak on behalf of God, stop, look, and listen. Stop and test what you're hearing. First John says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. So if a teacher's words are from God and you stop and listen, then you'll find that they match the exclusive word of God that is in the pages of the Bible. Listen, God's word is found for us on the pages of the Bible. You don't have to wonder if what I'm saying is of God or not. Listen to my words and if they match what's on the pages of the Bible, you got it. And if my words or anybody else's words that are proclaimed to be from God don't match the pages of the Bible, then we've missed it. So stop and listen. Test it. That's what John says. Test the spirits that you're hearing. You'll find God's ways are exclusively in the Bible. And if their teaching doesn't come from a book, a chapter, or a verse from the Bible, then don't move forward. Stop. If the principle or the lesson is contrary to what is written in God's word, then don't just stop. Turn around and run away. Stop when someone is proclaiming God's word. Listen, test it. Stop and listen. Listen to the lives, excuse me, look. Look into the lives of the teachers. I intend for my sermons to be preached one day a week and lived out seven days a week. That's my intention. I can tell you with all certainty that I am not perfect in that, and I don't pretend that you're not smart enough to recognize that I am not perfect. However, you ought to see my life humbly surrendered to the Holy Spirit and the instruction of the Bible. My life must closely resemble the words that I speak. Look at the lives of people who are proclaiming God's word to you and see if their lives match up. Now, some of you might argue and say, well, preacher, I don't want to judge. I don't want to judge you or other people, but my friends, I'm not asking you to judge me, and I'm not asking you to judge other people. What I'm telling you is that you have a duty given by God to inspect the fruit of the people who are proclaiming God's word. In fact, Jesus warned about false prophets in Matthew 7. He went on to say, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In other words, if their life is genuine in me, you will see the production of good fruit. And if the fruit is not evident, then you have to question the source. So stop and listen what they're saying. Measure it to God's word, including me. 
Look at the lives of the one who's proclaiming God's word. Does their life match the word in which they say? Now, I know some who would say the preacher is given an anointing at the time in which he preaches. Now, listen, that can get real risky because the preacher can do whatever he wants to do six days of the week. He comes into the pulpit and claims that God has anointed him to preach that message, and then he goes back to his old way of living. Hogwash. It ought to measure up. So stop and look, and then third, listen. Listen to the teacher's motives and the teacher's objectives. The motives of the false teacher is self-centeredness. In this way, in, uh, in, in Ephesus, they were people who wanted to resemble the rabbis of the first century. They wanted the, the power and the distinction of being like a rabbi where everybody in the culture looked to them. They were power-hungry, money-loving, ego-driven people. And Paul warns them that you ought to not listen. Jesus did the same thing in his day. Jesus looks around and he sees the motives of those who are teaching falsely. And he said, you know what I've seen? I've seen that they want places of honor. They want the best seats in the house. They want the greetings in the marketplace. And they want the titles. So stop. Listen to what they're saying. Does it match perfectly to the word of God? Look, does their life coincide with the words they teach? And listen to their objectives. Listen to their motives. So as pastors and teachers and for all of us who are Christian disciples and evangelists, our motive must be the love of God and love of people. That's where our motive lies. Our objective must be Christ's glory. Our focus must be on the sheep and the good shepherd of the sheep. And any desire for exaltation and honor must be given to Jesus Christ who is alone worthy of it. And let me draw you down to the simple truth of the gospel. The law proves that all people are sinners so deeply entrenched in our sin that we can't do anything to save ourselves. That's what the law is proving, and that's good. But God so loved the world that Christ came into the world to save sinners. God in human flesh lived righteously to die on the cross in order to be raised on the third day to justify us. By grace through faith in him, we can be forgiven of our sin and made anew in Christ Jesus. That's the glory of the gospel. And Paul says that is good doctrine. May the church hold to that good doctrine and all the other doctrines that are given to us in Christ through the apostles, through the teachings in the pages of the Bible. Don't be deceived by the proclamations and the writings of today's many false prophets, false teachers, nor to the opinions evident in the culture that is contrary to God's holy word in the Bible. Believe in the one true gospel. Believe in the doctrines of this, blue, this book. Believe and take your stand. and Fight for truth, especially in the house of God. Live righteously, for God is attentive to you and he will bless you and reward you today and for all eternity. May it be true of us. Let's pray together. Lord, as we draw our hearts to the word and our minds are sharply focused on it, I pray that you're extending great grace and faith to us, 
that we might walk according to your ways. We might be proclaimers and people who live out the proclamation of truth. May we be given to the gospel and the good doctrines of the faith. Help us, O Lord, to be right and true, to be courageous and strong and bold. Help us, O God, to be a church that brings honor and glory to Christ Jesus. For this church is bought by his own given of blood. It's purchased unto him. Has his name on it. We recognize his mission and his strategy. We want to be found faithful in it. If there are some in this room, Lord, who have yet to surrender their lives to Jesus, I pray this would be the day of salvation for them. And may Christ be exalted as they lay down their life, surrendering to him, resurrected to new life from heaven above. I pray in the glorious name of Jesus, the Savior and Lord. Amen.